This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So closing the, the masterful ninth book of the Confessions, Augustine for the only time mentions his mother by name. He writes, and I'll read this quote, May she then rest in peace with her husband. She was married to no other man, either before or after him. And in serving him, she brought forth fruit for you by patience, to win him for you in the end. Inspire others, my Lord, my God. Inspire your servants who are my brethren, your children who are my masters, whom I now serve with heart and voice and pen, that as many of them as read this may remember Monica, your servant, at your altar, along with Patricius, formerly her husband. From their flesh you brought me into this life, though how I do not know. Let people remember with loving devotion these two who were my parents in this transitory light, but also were my brethren under you, our Father, within our mother, the Catholic Church, and my fellow citizens in the eternal Jerusalem, for which your people sighs with longing throughout its pilgrimage, from its setting out to its return. So may the last request she made of me be granted to her more abundantly, evoked by my confessions, by the prayers of many, more than by my prayers alone. End of the quote. In this brief talk, I want to consider St. Monica in a series of images as her son recounted and reflected on the life, influence, and faith of his mother. In his mother, St. Augustine sees more than simply loving affection for her son. To describe his mother, Augustine uses the biblical language taken up by the Blessed Virgin Mary, an Anchila Dei, a servant of God. It is his mother's devotion to God, to her faith and piety, that Augustine sees in his mother, who so dearly loves her son. And as we approach Mother's Day, I want us to think about St. Monica, a woman so ordinary and yet remarkable, an image of steadfast piety, as well as an image of the Pilgrim Church. So something about St. Monica. She was born around 332, maybe 331, into a Christian family in Tagast. It's a city not far inland from Hippo. I was thinking of drawing this, but it's probably not worth it. But it's Hippo is a larger city on the Mediterranean port, the third largest city in, well, they get divided later, but proconsular um, Africa. She was brought up in her faith by her parents and other members of the household. And there are many things that we actually can infer about Monica through her upbringing and education. For example, Monica was likely able to read and likely write. She would have been educated and trained to manage officially a house, to keep the books and oversee numerous important endeavors. This is far, far more than cooking and cleaning as valuable as those things are. Financial prosperity depends on the dutiful labor and intelligence of the Domina Domi, or the Lady of the House. I say this because I think it's easy to view her St. Monica and most of these women as being just simple. Uh, the, the acumen they had to have to do the things they had to do, the bartering, the planning, all of these things, is actually quite incredible. And to most of us now, uh, we do nothing of this kind, right? We just order on Amazon or some other place. 
and cook for something. So Monica was educated, in a sense, to be virtuous, to be accountable, to be intelligent, to be keen. And to this end, Augustine accounts the story, fam- somewhat famous, and it seems his mother actually told him this story several times about when she was allowed to go down with the servant to take some of the wine back up. Uh, this is kind of like, I don't know, maybe training your children to cut the lawn or something like this. Like, this is something adults do. Maybe drive. I don't know. But it's not just go do this. It's part of showing that she's maturing. And, of course, she begins to scoop some of the wine out. And finally, the servant, because they're in some spat, calls her a Mary Bibulam, which means like literally one who drinks the pure wine. And this strikes to her heart. And it chastises her because, obviously, the pure wine, she gets slightly intoxicated. And so she stops then. And I guess we'll comment on this later when she goes to offer um, respect at the shrines of the dead, how she will only take a small sip of highly watered wine. This image of her training shows, in a sense, how God is schooling her, if you will, training her. Because it's an image of God's grace through an unintentional action of another. Right? It's not as if the servant meant that, but rather she's taken by it to the quick. This is similar to Olypius, his friend, with a story about the games where he's just listening to Augustine talk, and Augustine says something, and Olypius thinks, ooh, that's about me, but it wasn't. Whether seen, known, Monica is being formed. Now, Monica was likely married at a young age, 15 to 18, to Patricius, who we can assume was likely 15 to 20 years her senior. They had three children that we know of, Navigius, Augustine, and an unnamed sister. We could say more about them, but I'll leave them at this point. There are so many things about her life that we kind of can know through little bits here and there and of the common culture. But I want to focus on Monica's preserving zeal to bring her family totally into a Christian faith. She is a devoted Christian, and this is how Augustine depicts her. Now, we know her husband, Patricius, was not a Christian when they married. And Augustine notes his father's infidelity and temper. Although I want to say, Augustine also mentions at several points his father's generosity. Monica's steadfast love and faith is even found in her responses, her assurances that she receives in response to her prayers and petitions. One example of this is when Monica famously cried tears, wetting the ground over her son's entrance into the Manichaean religion. His entrance into this religion, for us, may strike us as a bit odd, maybe not so serious, however it may be. But for Monica, this was him entering a deadly path. And in fact, at several points, as you'll see, she will even say she viewed him as one dead. But she also has this with her son, who in the early morning sneaks out from Rome, telling his mother that he was only going to say goodbye to friends. And we see, so he deceives his mother, we see her praying and weeping at the shrine of St. Cyprian for her son, who's now departed across the seas. Monica remains steadfast, in a sense, crying for her son. Well, literally. At an early point, when Monica refused to stay with her son because of his Manichaeism, Augustine writes, quote, In her faith and in the spiritual discernment she possessed by your gift, she regarded me as dead, 
And you heard her, O Lord. You heard her and did not scorn those tears of hers, which gushed forth and watered the ground beneath her eyes wherever she prayed. The crisis here would take more elaboration. But for Monica, for her son to live, he would be Catholic. And she famously has a dream where she is instructed by an angelic young man who, based on this, is right, it's an image of Christ, that Augustine is brought, she's standing on this ruler, which, of course, is an image of the cross. And abrust, she speaks with this man, and he says, look beside you, and there Augustine stands. She's assured that her son will come to her faith first on and through the cross. And secondly, she's so assured that she's able to resist the jests of her son. Because Augustine will actually mock her and say, well, maybe you will become a manichae. And of course she says, no, you were brought to where I was standing, not me to you. And she's actually able to live once again under her son's roof, like to live with him, because the consolation that this provides, instead of just shunning, she's able actually to pray and live with him. But this adds another story, which sort of shows her faithful piety and, I don't know, remarkable uh, persistence and love. That Monica persisted in requesting a priest to visit Augustine, and this priest had been a manichae when he was younger. And he, she wants this priest to lead him from his Manichaean faith. And the priest, very famously, because she keeps coming, says to her, Bade, depart, depart from me. As long as you live, this will not happen. The son of those tears of yours will not perish. He says, go away from me. Stop pestering me. And she takes this to be an oracle from God. She sees this, strangely, as both that her son will not perish and the efficacy, in a certain sense, of her tears, of her prayers, of her concern, of her love. This image, perhaps, is common to us. Monica, for those who know, as a steadfast, loving mother who prays and weeps for her son. But Augustine's recounting of Monica is not as one who is flawless. Monica wants her son to be a Christian, but also a successful Roman. Augustine repeatedly emphasizes how his parents were concerned with his success in Roman culture more than his growth in love of God. And I take this in part, you'd say, well, at least I think this as a father. Come on, right? You want the best for your children. But he is faulting his parents, maybe a bit severely, but also that you see that they wanted him to succeed as a Roman. And at times this would mean that other things would be put before his, his love of God and his morality. A good example of this, and it's something that I think it's very difficult to get out of most English translations, Augustine notes in his 16th year, when he was back at home because there was some sort of issue with the finances, that his father sees that he is now matured enough and may have children. And his father was now a catechumen, which is one of Monica's accomplishments. And his mother is concerned now, and she warns him of fornication and especially of adultery. Now, Augustine is at the point where obviously he can have sex and have children, 
in a theory, a marriage could be arranged, but if it was arranged for a 16-year-old, it sort of dooms their fate for someone who needs to progress socially. As you can imagine, a wife and kids may not be good for, I don't know, law school or something like this. It's similar in this. And what's amazing is Augustine faults Monica and that she's more concerned about his future study than by restraining his lust and conjugal love. He says that she was still on the outskirts of Babylon, though, of course, Augustine was in the center. She encouraged chastity, but she permitted Augustine's sexual activity, and strikingly, she opposed marriage. <clears throat> What's interesting about this, in part, is that Patricius seems to have been encouraging that Augustine would get married. I find that an interesting dynamic there, that though this father saw this and said, maybe the son should get married, but Monica opposed this. Augustine writes here, quote, her reluctance to arrange a marriage for me arose from the fear that if I were encumbered with a wife, my hope could be dashed. Not hope in you for the world to come, to which she herself held, but my hope of academic success. In this way, though, still a Christian, Monica wed together her hope of her son's salvation, which she's assured of, and her hope of his success and what that would look like. <coughs> Augustine recounts something very similar to this later in the Confessions, when his... It's hard to, to say in what exactly you'd say. Concubine, common-law wife, his amour for something of 14 years to whom he says he was faithful, he had a son with, and they may have been together as long as 17 years, uh, well, 16. So in Book 6, Section 13, 23, Monica takes part, it seems, in the decision to send this anonymous um, beloved of Augustine away. And she is integral in the organization of Augustine's marriage into a very wealthy family. Now, of course, Augustine surely bears most of the blame for this. But Monica was wanting him to marry up. And so this woman who goes away and lives uh, likely a religious life back in North Africa, which is why she's not named. She's probably still alive at the time of writing the Confessions, which is only some 12 years to 13 years after this event. She's sent away, and Monica has some part in this. She'd rather him marry up. This, he says, was done solely for material and social gain. And his description of this is very beautiful. Uh, it, it really draws from uh, Genesis and the drawing from the rib and, and the fact how he was choosing uh, infidelity, whereas this anonymous woman was choosing then chastity. Uh, so he has her ripped from his side in sort of a painful way. And he talks about how it still stays with him. But even though Augustine presents Monica this way as well, Her faith and piety are not questioned by Augustine. Her prayers, Augustine realized, have aided him while he had been in Rome, while she remained in Africa. But then she, being as formidable as she is, travels the treacherous journey across the Mediterranean to come stay with her son in Milan. There's something about Monica that you can perhaps notice is that she is formidable, remarkably so. Uh, I think the journey from Tagast a little inland 
up to Hippo is something like 30 miles. But if you take it from Hippo to Carthage, it's around 125 miles, which is several days that journey. So you would have to make it with attendance and all of this. The journey from Carthage to Milan, of course, you have to sail around Sicily into Ostia, the main port, go through Rome, travel up to the north. This is an arduous journey that she undertakes to see her son. And she takes with her her older, likely her older son, Navigius, some cousins. I mean, she takes everyone in tow. That she would make such a journey to see her son, what you see is in part to secure him, to win him. In Milan, she's there now a widow, as of her husband had died likely when Augustine was 17. And it's something else to note of her. When Augustine has to quit school for a year, they don't have the resources. Patricius is dead. It seems that Monica likely secured his education through her own property. She had to work something out. It's complicated how this works, but noble women inherited their own property from their father, kept it as their own. And then, of course, the father's property there would be divided amongst the three children, this sort of thing. So she likely had to leverage something to be able to send her son to continue school. So her activity and what she's involved in is quite impressive throughout, and you can only see this as the subtext. But now a widow in Milan, she begins to attend Mass twice a day at the Church of St. Ambrose. She, of course, is there during the besiegement of the church uh, to be attempting to take that from Ambrose and install an Arian instead. And Ambrose, of course, praises Monica to Augustine. One thing that uh, Ambrose seems to know about Augustine is his mother. And he says, shouldn't you be proud of such a mother? She doubles her prayers. She doubles her attendance to Mass for the sake of her son. And when Augustine, when she comes there back to Milan, she's surprised to find that Augustine has now says he's left the Manichees. And he's entered the catechumena to the Catholic Church. And he notes how he was doing this now of what both of his parents wanted for him. And just as an aside, I just think there's a lot here with Patricius that's sort of beneath the layers uh, of his hopes as well. What's remarkable about this shift is Augustine begins his time in Milan in Book 6, as you read through it, with his despair. He writes, quote, Yet I was walking a dark and slippery path, searching for you outside myself and failing to find the God of my own heart. I had sunk to the depths of the sea. I lost all faith and despaired of ever finding the truth. Seems pretty sad. But immediately he follows this with his mother. Steadfast, he quote, steadfast in her fidelity, my mother had by this time rejoined me, for so completely did she trust in you that she had not feared to follow me over land and sea. Monica steadfast in her faith and trust, so much so that Augustine even describes her comforting the sailors on their journey across the Mediterranean. There is the contrast of him plunged in the depth and, of course, Monica traversing the sea in faith. He writes for, quote, that while she constantly wept over me in your sight as over a dead man, it was over one who, though dead, could still be raised to life again. She offered me to you upon the bier of her meditation, begging you to say to this widow's son, young man, arise, I tell you. There's something here. Of course, I think you see a similar thing in Dostoevsky with crime and punishment. But how she's praying, in a sense, for the resurrection of her son, 
to be brought back to life in his faith. And she told Augustine that she's confident that she herself would see him a Catholic before the end of her life. But with this confidence, she continues attending Ambrose's church regularly. She redoubles her fervent tearful prayers for her son's salvation because she begins to see that in order for him to completely change, he'll have to go physical suffering. All of this culminates, in a sense, with Augustine's conversion. When he recounts his famous conversion scene, which I'm assuming is somewhat familiar, the tree, the tole lege. Immediately, he goes to tell his mother, Monica. He says, quote, When we related to her how it happened, she was filled with triumphant delight and blessed you, who have more power to do more than we ask or understand. For she saw that you had granted her much more in my regard than she had wont to beg of you in her wretched, tearful groaning. Augustine continues this saying, quote, For you, God, had converted me to yourself. In doing so, you had also converted her grief into joy, far more abundant than she had desired, and much more tender and chaste than she would, could ever have looked to find in grandchildren from my flesh. What we see here is Augustine's realization of the culmination of his mother's faith and the intercession, as well, of God's grace. But this grace has not only changed Augustine, it has also changed Monica. Monica, who once fought to keep her son unmarried, to pursue his career, and later fought to get her son married to advance his career, now realizes God's full action in her prayers. They are answered, and she herself is converted to see God more fully. It is almost as if Augustine's conversion to Christianity is bound with the full conversion of Monica to God. The objects of her tears is realized, and her desires clarified. But it is not what she had envisioned. In herself, now seeing this great joy of what it is, in a sense, her own sight is clarified. And we see this, let's say, new almost in a sense, perfected Monica, perfected kind of charity, in the dialogues from Kasekiakum. Following Augustine's conversion, he has to then do what would have so disappointed Monica. Augustine breaks off his marriage, and then he quits his career, as we heard, as an imperial rhetor, where he would give discourses between, before the Senate, especially before the emperor. And to explain what this is like, it's like someone coming from, I don't know, Mississippi, North Africa is not Mississippi, but some other state, Ohio, Michigan. Like, these are mediocre states. And, <laughs> and making it all the way to, I don't know, Harvard. You know, some place where it is the elite of the elite. What he accomplished is quite remarkable. And the hope is, of course, that he'll move up to be a provincial governor, as had been done. People from, let's say, the lower upper class, like Augustine is, or the upper middle class. The opportunity to become actually a governor through this way, not because of one's birth nobility. He has to quit this job, or he does quit this job, has to, is complicated. And he has to sever this future marriage that he was going to have. This had to have been, well, it should have been profoundly disappointing to Monica, because in a way you think, actually, couldn't it now just all work itself out? But Monica seems to understand this, so they go up afterwards to a place slightly north of Milan, sort of a country estate. It's called Kesekiakum. 
And there are four dialogues from this point. And they take place with Augustine's son, his brothers there, his friend Olypius, two students, uh, Tragertius and uh, Lacentius. His cousins are there, though they don't speak. And they debate sort of philosophical, theological topics, such as what is the happy life, or on order, or against the academics is one. The soliloquies are one where others aren't present. In these dialogues, we see, in a sense, Monica's joy, her growth. She sees how God's promise has come to fullness. It has changed her in a certain sense. What Augustine says about her and what she is reported to have said in these dialogues is astounding. Augustine realizes, quote, the power of her mind came home to me, and I realized that it could not be more suited to true philosophizing. I decided, therefore, that when she was at leisure, she should be present at our conversations. Like Monica has become a true philosopher. When he's debating the topic of the happy life, he hears the solution given by his mother, and he smiles cheerfully and extols her as holding the very citadel of philosophy. Her son is utterly amazed that his mother, who of course lacks the eloquence of Cicero, who does not at least properly have philosophical education, though she probably had overheard these discussions many times, she matches Cicero in content, and everyone there is amazed, and even say, as if some great man had come into their midst. Augustine discerns the magnificence of his mother, whose keen wisdom flows from some dynamic relationship with the divine. It flows from a source above. In fact, he doesn't even conclude this dialogue with a display of his brilliance, but rather with a laud to his mother and the God who truly showed, had truly shown her such things. Augustine writes, quote, Do you all see now that a great difference exists between many and varied doctrines and a soul that is devoted to God. For from what other source flows these words that we admire? Right, saying this of his mother, what she had just said. Clearly, Monica possesses true happiness, as she, above all the others there, displays the very presence of God. And it's she that actually ends this, beginning to sing a hymn from Ambrose, O Trinity, help those that pray. She reveals to all how she has followed such a path to God, and how all in faith, hope, and love can do the same. Monica, in this text, De Beata Vita, not only depicts the wisdom of the faithful unlearned, but also preaches the way to God, teaching the learned. There are many other things that happened here, and I want to just highlight another quotation, because it is quite remarkable. One dialogue, another one, concludes with St. Monica also. And he says to her, quote, Mother, to the end that these petitions be most observantly made, we enjoin the charge on you, through whose prayers I unhesitatingly believe and proclaim that God has given me this resolve. To prize nothing more highly than the finding of truth, to wish for, to think of, to love nothing else. And I further believe that through your petitioning, we shall obtain the great blessing which through your meriting we have come to desire. But this is a remarkable thing that is said here about her. Not only does she somehow hold the citadel of philosophy, she possesses true wisdom, but her petitions, her prayers, they believe will aid them in coming to desire this. 
This culminates, if we were to now jump from those early texts, which are from 387, the, well, actually 386, the fall, to when he writes the confession some 10 to 14 years later, the famous recounting of the vision at Ostia. And I won't say much about this, except that this vision is perhaps a critique of something that last night Father mentioned in Book 7, of the ascent where Augustine seeks to uh, consume God, but his mala consuetudo holds him back. He's sort of beaten back because he wants to consume God instead of being consumed by God. And there's another recounting in Book 7 of another attempt for a kind of union with God, and they're failed attempts. In Book 9, Augustine recounts that Ostia, as they're attempting to go back home, of course, sadly, she, Monica, passes, and then there's a civil war, so Augustine has to go back to Rome. But they have, they're looking out the window and talking. And together, these two, one, the sophisticated, learned son, and the uneducated mother, begin to talk, and remarkably, they ascend in their colloquy. And I just give you just a touch of this. <clears throat> he says, quote, Our colloquy led us to the point where the pleasures of the body senses, however intense and however brilliant a material light enjoined, seemed unworthy, not merely of comparison, but even of remembrance, beside the joy of that life, and we lifted ourselves in longing, yet more ardent toward that which is God. And step by step traversed all bodily creatures in heaven. And he continues, and we ascend more, step by step. There is this ascent to God through the conversation together. Part of what is remarkable, as we see here, is that this is an ascent to God that takes place together. Such an ascent can only be done by God. It is no longer the intellectual capacity of the individual which allows for the ascent to something higher. Sort of the pride that Augustine has in that is beaten back. But then together, to have two people of such different intellectual capacity ascend together takes place in part because God does the lifting. <clears throat> At the end of this vision, Monica says, What now keeps me here? You have become Catholic. Why do I tarry? Shortly thereafter, Monica dies. Before her death, this beautiful scene, her son, Navigius, the older son, discusses her burial site that she has spent so much time preparing with her husband, Patricius. She wants to be buried next to him, sort of their, their marriage that they have had together. And Navigius says, don't die, mother. Don't die. No, don't worry. You'll make it back to Africa. And of course, she had already talked about this with Augustine and how no longer she have hope in this world and for only the resurrection it need not matter. And she looks at Augustine on her deathbed and says, this guy. <laughs> Which I, I just, I like this uh, thing. But all are, she has like discourses on her deathbed and all comment, he says, at her bravery and her death. They marvel at her courage. When she finally dies, there's one other scene that just sort of shows this very beautifully. Monica, when she passes, it causes Augustine to lose the great comfort of his soul. Her, his soul wounded, his life torn asunder, for he says, quote, it had been one life made of hers and mine together. But he refuses to weep, but his son Adeodatus weeps, and they sort of chastise the boy, who's, you know, actually 15 or 16, so. <clears throat> What's incredible about this encounter is Augustine finally breaks down and cries. His sort of stoic attempt to hold this in is, is loosened. And it's sort of unclear 
how much this is a critique of a kind of apatheia, you know, re- removal of the passions. But Augustine does say, if you want to fault me for crying for such a mother who cried for me for all these years. It's very, very beautiful, and it turns to this very quote that I began with. She asked him his last thing and those around her to remember her at the altar. Augustine realizes that Monica has been a vessel of grace. She has both been graced. She has been trained, formed. Her own hopes, even as they've been steadfastly in Christ, have been altered and shifted. But she has been a personal instrument of grace, drawing others, even the closest of in her family, into the embrace of the church and to cling to Christ. And I think in this whole depiction of Monica as a kind of vessel of grace, it is really fitting that Augustine ends his reflection with the quote I began with. To pray for her and remember her in prayer when they go before the altar. And what's amazing, I think, and remarkably fitting, is how he asks his reader, even those of us today, to pray for her still. Thank you. So I, I would say the things that we do know. Uh, first, the sort of reverence of the shrines and sort of famously, you know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Uh, she has a, a piety for the saints and martyrs. You can tell that she's praying at the church of St. Cyprian in Carthage. Uh, there are shrines, eventually they grow to something close to 30 different shrines for Cyprian the martyr in Carthage. Uh, how many there were at her life, it's not clear, but there are at least a few that it seems they existed at the time. Uh, so this reverence for the saints, we find it all throughout North Africa uh, and, honestly, many other places. So so that part, certainly. We also, she is the one who recounts the hymns of Ambrose, uh, Augustine then eventually as well. Her praying of the Psalms, the, the Ambrosian hymns that he writes, she is praying them. Uh, and she ends one dialogue, beginning to lead that chant as part of her piety. It's, it's, uh, it's very beautiful, and this sticks with Augustine. He uses this, this one of them, he uses actually several times in other works uh, to refer to things. And we do know there's a funny scene in one of the dialogues where Lycantius, who's sort of having a kind of conversion scene, uh, is actually praying a psalm or chanting a psalm in the bathroom or in the latrine. And Monica hates this because, you know, when you pray the psalm, it should be in a holy place. And they have this little discussion about where one may do this. Uh, so we do know the psalms, right? She's praying the Psalter. She's going regularly. We see the hymns of Ambrose. We know of the, of the sort of piety of, of the veneration of the saints and these things. Uh, yeah, a lot seems to come through of what she seems to do. I mean, it's very likely she lived close enough, it says in Tagast, to go once a day to the church. Uh, so in Milan, as a widow, twice a day. And we can imagine maybe similarly in Tagasa. So very actively participating in these things. Thank you. Yes? Um, I was wondering if there was bigger, like I imagine what the conversation that they had, like felt like the gospel contemplated it a lot after. Is there like more in the rest of his writings that talks about what that assembly I feel like it must have been something that he was trying to work out. Like, 
So he himself starts writing about a sense. Uh, in 388, in a work, De Quantitate Anime, he has this scala up to ascent. He does it again, at kind of, in his Sermon on the Mount from 393. Uh, there's a smaller one in De Doctrina Christiana, and of course, this one in the Confessions. So the motif is there throughout. But this particular one, but I, what I hope later I will talk about, uh, shows the sort of theology undergirding this like ascent through Christ, the whole body. Uh, that, yes. Uh, he doesn't ever sort of dissect this. And it's actually, I think, I don't know better that he doesn't. Because it would be like, you know, what we say some particular potent word and then ascend. Uh, but that they are talking, right? A conversation which, as with every question here asks, like something's sort of lost, right? I mean, I'm saying the answers and you're thinking, why are you saying this? Uh, to have that actually, let's say, lead you up to God, it just shows grace active, but also the way in which his mother is um, part of this very process of his own being able to do this, that he would ascend with her. And they come back down. It's just remarkably, I know, beautiful, I will say that, but also theologically very profound. And that's why Monica sometimes is depicted as an image of the church because of, in a sense, her journey, but also as she brings one in, because often he says, Nos, uh, mater, like our mother, as he talks to her, just like Ambrose, he says, our priest. But Monica throughout, everyone viewed her as their mother. Yes? Um, it seems that there is, between Monica and Augustine, there seems to be like, in the relationship, the mother-son, obviously, but also a, like in a friendship, yeah, yeah. More than more than necessarily a, a parental uh, relationship. Um, well, I hope parents can be yeah. friends uh, with their children. Um, we will see, I guess. <laughs> what role do you think like that friendship played that kind of elevated um, like Augustine and Monica's conversion? Like, what do you think it was more father? I mean, mother son. Um, or was it like, was the friendship aspect to it? Like, how much of a role? So I won't make them like an either or or competitive because I, I think all relationships in a sense have a kind of, they particularly contribute to some of this. But if we were to say that it's just one of a parent raised the child to kick them off into the world, um, Monica has that. And in fact, that's part of what is in a sense what Augustine criticizes about her. Right in a way, it's the motherly. Although friends could do the same, but it's the motherly and the fatherly aspirations to have him succeed as a as a rhetor, or have him uh, marry up uh, to contribute to their family. So, the friendship, like two talking philosophy, in, in a way, like there's no image of a higher sort of friendship in the ancient world. Right, uh, these are then equals, and her son has. I mean, obviously, he's very brilliant. There's just no. There's no way around that. She is obviously very a very smart, keen, uh, sophisticated, extraordinary woman. Uh, so that they're actually talking, though, together without both being of same education. You know, they went to the same university and had the same degrees and titles uh, is something to say of how this friendship takes place like, through God. But that they are friends is something that's very important because this, this image, what Augustine's, I think, gesturing at, 
is sort of in John 15 when you have Christ say, no longer servants, but friends, like made friends through Christ. And this sort of ascent that takes place, the kind of the possibility of a true and profound friendship between people that are at least, if not, not equal, remarkably different, is incredible. And you're right. This looks a lot like friendship. And it, it's probably sad for many baby boomers. It doesn't possess the Freudian agony that they so want. Right? I mean, but her, her death looks a lot like a, a better form of a Socratic death um, in a certain way. She has true courage not to, you know, make sure you pay my debt, which, of course, Nietzsche hated about one of the dialogues. Um, and the imaging of Macrina, uh, Gregory of Nyssa's older sister, is very similar as well. Like, these are philosophers now who have come to death with courage and see beyond it. So in a way, she's a magistra. She's teaching him. But she's also his friend, and in a way, there's the motherly. And so just this sort of looking at it, it's, it's quite remarkable, the depiction. Yes? Yeah, it, but we do know that the older servant or, or slave in the house, it's a very beautiful depiction with all the complications of the institution that are being complicated, right? And in a sense, loathsome, but actually also complicated. Um, she is the one who carried her father around, she says, on her back. And she's teaching Monica. And so she is sort of the what, catechist of the, the children. So you know that that was happening for at least as old as Jesus. And again, Monica is born around 332. So Constantine, uh, you know, Constantinople's 330, etc. So her father would have been at least 25 years earlier. So you're dealing with a pre-Diocletian Christianity. And we do know the persecution is pretty severe. Uh, that's partly by my guess, just a guess, but it seems a reasonable one, of the piety towards the martyrs. Um, Tagast, where they're at, is, it's complicated. It, it seems to have been settled by, let's say, we call them Punics, but it's much more complicated, but not by Roman um, veterans. Some of the cities, if you know, like they, they so decimated Carthage in the Punic Wars that they set up colonies there. Uh, and so that's where some cities like Hippo, but th th Tagast seems not to be that way. So these ones go back to the pre-Diocletian period, the persecution of North Africa that we know is pretty severe, uh, not only from Cyprian. Uh, eventually, they start targeting mostly clergy, but perpetual felicity, who are great martyrs there. Um, yeah, so we can only point it at from what we know of the time. But yeah, that's that's Monica's family. Like it does go back. They would have had those things. Uh, they would have known them. Uh, it, it is remarkable because you just, I guess in reading it, you don't quite see it, but then when you realize how the generations must go, that that older slave, she goes certainly back. She would have been a teenager to remember what's going on in Diocletian's persecution, which was severe in North Africa and targeted and other ones. So, yeah. Yes. Um, so you mentioned Monica being chastised and kind of uh, the instrumentality of people as instruments of God's grace and education kind of being a theme throughout confession. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. I was just wondering, does Augustine ever concede that Monica and as well as his father 
uh, emphasis on his earthly success could have been a providential aspect yeah, yeah. of his conversion. So, for example, with the Manichees, this famous phrase, factus erectior, like I was made more upright by being a Manichee. Like it's both, in a sense, dead, but they actually were morally austere. It reigned in his desires to some degree. So it's both in a certain way. Like it doesn't mean that the decisions or the things you did were actually good, uh, but grace somehow through them. Uh, and this is obviously more of a subjective thing than applying it to others, right? I mean, you kind of had this. I still don't know why this happened to me. I'm still, I'm just kidding. But you kind of think like if you said, well, this happened to you because whatever, you know, I'm a jerk. So that's a little mean. Uh, you're probably right. But subjectively looking back at your life, you begin to analyze this. And this is what Augustine does. Like, it doesn't mean that this was right, but something happened here. And I see now God's action that is not the act itself, but drawn from it. The harmful word to Monica, uh, his decisions, his training. Undoubtedly, he sees the benefits of them. And he, he does talk about it. But he also sees the pitfalls, uh, that this was a blessing, but. And in De Doctrina Christiana, one of these sort of handbooks, he's trying to actually, in a sense, overcome that by giving a handbook in a way that people can learn some of the rhetorical skills without having to pursue the ends that are often linked with those things. Yes. Um, thank you for your talk. I, I'm interested in following up on this idea of like Monica as uh, I guess his friend and the contrast of friendship and uh, a mother-son relationship. And um, just because I hadn't really known about uh, her presence at Katsikiakum, uh, so I'm curious, so curious about how maybe if you can at least uh, maybe first briefly describe like how Augustine kind of set himself up there. And then what it was like, and then how did Monica wind up there? Because there's a there's there's a, a mother son dynamic, I think, where the you know, mothers will say, like, "Oh, I'll leave you with your friends." She does say that. Yeah. When he they says, say that. She, so, and she says, like, women are not heard to be in these sorts of things. Yeah. And he's like, well, in a sense, you know, only the foolish would not want to hear the wise. Yeah. Uh, so, and then yeah, generally this <coughs> invitation. How does how does uh, how does their friendship move along? Because one of the things about friendship is like that there's sort of automatic quality to it. You know, you just are with your friends. And whereas there's a, something more complicated with uh, family, and you, you don't want to be you don't want to be an imposition. Um, I don't think she. Natural times of, of presence. So it is. It's interesting in the Roman world the way in which like he's up there because they asked for in a sense were given this estate by a wealthy friend. So he's able to go up there as a retreat after he quits his job, what resources he has, power not limited. So the way in which the Romans sort of give and take as patronage, I don't know what it's like because I would be loath to let someone like borrow my lawnmower. Uh, but there seems to be a desire or there seems to be expectation of, uh, of aid, beneficence and that there, which is maybe more foreign, at least to me. Uh, so that's a subtext. But no, Monica there is depicted both as mother. She's serving them lunch several occasions, but then it's sort of a play on that because she ends up serving the whole meal, in a sense, like the philosophical meal that they're dining on. And there's a play on food. Uh, and one of the dialogues starts in the bath where she's not, right? Which is a sort of a maybe a critique of Plato. Uh, they're, they're in there. Um, but she is depicted as a mother and then as a friend, this dear friend in a way. And I don't think actually the tension is resolved. I think in part this is perhaps... Part the Christian dimension of that. 
like that people aren't exempt equals utterly or undifferentiated like friends it's natural you know you like similar things you have similar background i think this is in a sense like the church not everyone is of the same education or the same background it's not so natural and what brings them together well love of wisdom in a sense love of christ uh, it's very beautiful, and but I don't think they push that together. And there's, the awkwardness is drawn out in certain little things here. Like, why am I here? I'm a mother. I need to go get some food. Or Monica just kind of makes a comment and goes out. She can't take it. She comes in and hears them talking. What are you talking about? She interrupts. And Augustine keeps drawing her in, but you see her still as Nostra. Like, she's all of their mother, in a way. She's tending to them. And then you see her as a philosopher, as a friend in a way, as their teacher. It's very interesting, but that tension is still there. Uh, and I take this, like he wants, in a sense, would I take it as a whole, but Monica to be, in a sense, an image for those reading. I mean, you can't help but read it and think, I'll pray for Monica. Uh, sort of Nostra Mater, uh, which then towards the church. So he still wants her, in a sense, as a mother and a philosopher teacher it's it's i think done if just looking at it literally it is remarkable and i don't know parallels like this at all uh, but i think deeper i think there's an authenticity to that i'd say you would probably know better than i in religious life the complications of having there's a hierarchy and how that relates but yet democratic and that similarity but some of these things okay let's thank